it was one of the first times I was out with my guitar that was given to me as a gift. It was my first, my first acoustic guitar. And I don't know who it was, but someone threw a metal piece of change toward me and it hit my guitar and it created a mark. Now, some of you that aren't musicians be like, big deal, but for a musician, your instrument's kind of like part of you. And uh, I cried a little on the inside when I saw the, the, the bruise now on my nice acoustic guitar. I was on the street uh, with a number of my fellow students. We were in downtown Boise. It was my freshman year of college. I was going to a Bible college studying ministry, and, uh, and a, a number of us just decided, hey, we're going to go, we're going to save the world for Jesus, starting in downtown Boise, on the streets, and uh, we were on a corner, there was a number of bars there, and look, you know, I'd only been a Christian for a few years, and I, I really kind of got this, you know, kind of this zeal almost, like I'm going to, you know, conquer the world, you know, for Jesus, and it's, I'm not going to slow down until it happens, and we were downtown, and I'm pretty sure nothing ever happened. Like, I don't know that people were really drawn to Jesus by what we were doing. I realize that now. But at the moment, I thought I was saving the world. And we were singing songs. These people didn't know these songs. We were singing Christian songs. And then we had some Bibles we were handing out, you know. And I don't know if anybody had a bullhorn, but it would have fit the picture. I was there on the street corner, and I just remember... It's funny, all those nights we'd go out, the, the one I remember is when the guy threw a piece of change and hit my guitar. And to this day, I'm not sure if the guy was, like, offended that we were down there. That could have been an option. Or maybe uh, he was thanking us by tipping us with change that he's throwing like a baseball. That could have been an option. <laughs> The most likely option is he was drunk out of his mind, and that was not uncommon for where we were. And I just remember, you know, the, the college used that for quite a while. They got some traction on that, you know, and you can understand that. You know, the Bible college, they're, they're fundraising. We got students that are on the streets, you know, preaching Jesus, and that was true. It didn't last very long, but, you know, when I, when I first became a follower of Christ, I really thought that, you know, I've, I've got to tell everybody. And my thinking was that that included, you know, trying to be Billy Graham. You know, maybe some of you have something similar. Now, I realize you may not have been on a street corner, you know, putting yourself out there like that. You may think, well, that's crazy. Who would ever do that? That's nuts. I realize we're in a different, you know, time frame now. That was in the 90s. And we're in a different culture now. A different the society's moved on. Technology's moved on. But there's this tension that I felt then and I still feel now and maybe you feel the same way. How do you, how do you live out your faith in our modern world? You know, is the way to live out your faith for Jesus, is it, does it include standing on the public square and preaching to people as they go by with a bullhorn? Is, is that the way to do it? I've, I've come to realize in my life that there's many ways to help people discover Jesus, probably the least effective of which is doing what I was doing on that one cold night in Boise with my guitar in my hands. But I wanted people to know Jesus, and I just struggled with how to do that in a way that makes sense. And maybe you've struggled with that tension too. 
Maybe you've wondered about that when you're at work or you're, you know, you're at the ball fields with your kids or you're in community and, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out what's appropriate, you know, when to say something, when's not. Anybody ever had that tension at all in your life? Some of you? Okay. We'll, we'll form a support group later. We'll talk, we'll talk this out. Well, I think that tension is something real, and it's part of, part of our theme that we've been in for the last couple weeks. And we've been in a series called Exiles, the people of God awaiting home. And this series, we're exploring this concept and this theme of exile throughout the Bible. In fact, when you start to see this idea of exile, you almost can't read the Bible the same way anymore because you realize how much we've been in exile. And, and when we started week one, you know, Andrew, our, our next-gen pastor, uh, he kicked it off great where he was talking about even from the, the beginning stages of humanity, even back, way back, Garden of Eden time, humanity was given a choice, walk with God or go their own way. And what did humanity choose? Well, we're going to explore our own way. And that went haywire. And in Genesis ch- chapter 3, humanity went into exile. A people of God awaiting home. So it's it's right at the beginning of Scripture, and you can follow that theme over and over and over again. So that's how we queued it up. If you missed that, you can catch up on the podcast. Last week, we kind of fast-forwarded from those Genesis days up and through this this, this whole group of people that, in fact, most of the Bible is about. This nation of Israel. It was supposed to be this nation where God was king, not any human. That's what we, they were going to be God's people. And in fact, they were supposed to be a blessing to the world. That was the promise of this people. Starting with the patriarch, and you may remember this guy's name from somewhere, a guy named Abraham. And uh, he was going to be the father line of this, 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 this people of God, this, this nation of Israel. We talked about last week how that nation really struggled. Even from the beginning, they struggled. And we talked about this, you know, again last week, where at some point uh, after the death of one of the big kings of that nation, King Solomon, yes, they eventually did have a king because they rejected God as king, uh, but that's last week. They rejected God as king, so they got kings, and it started with Saul, and then it went to David, and then it went to Solomon. And that arguably was sort of the end, really, of the golden age of Israel. Because after Solomon's death, things went sideways very fast. There was civil war that, in, that ensued in just a few, a few hundred years, and we had bad kings and good kings and ups and downs, and finally the nation uh, split into two, and there was the northern tribes we, that, that, that remained Israel, and then the southern kingdom of Judah around Jerusalem, and eventually the Assyrians took power, and they took the whole northern kingdom up, and historians would say we probably lost those tribes to history, never to return. That left that little group of folks See, Israel had like millions at the beginning. But by then, they were down to the thousands. And this little nation now just kind of huddled up Judah, now had to face the threat of the ancient kingdom and empire of Babylon. And Babylon came in in 586 B.C., somewhere around there, the, the, the Babylonians came, and not only did they destroy the city and destroy the temple and take all the... They basically just cherry-picked every nation that they went through. And the Babylonians destroyed everything in Jerusalem. And then came the waves of deportees, taken from their homeland, transferred to Babylon. We, we talked about that a lot last weekend. And so they were a people in exile. 
And today, we're going to bring it forward to the New Testament era. Because exile wasn't over for the people of God. So let's, let's pause for a second and pray and get into today, today's message. Ecclesia, exile, and the church era. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We just ask that you'd speak to every heart. I pray that you'd speak through me. Uh, Father, your word would be strong as we speak your word. Father, I pray that you challenge and, 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 and change every heart that's here. Lord, that we would hear something that we need to hear today. Uh, that, Lord, you'd move in a powerful way in our church gathering. And, Father, we want you to get all the glory because you can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So, Lord, we, we take a pause in our week and we come on this first day of the week to get reset and recharged to be your people in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. So we get to the first century. By the time we get to the first century... The, the beleaguered nation that was Judah then taken away to Babylon. Then finally, history would let us know that they were brought back at some point. The different kings were risen up by God and, and eventually the people that were a remnant were finally allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem never felt like home again. It never was what it once was. And so the people were back, but they never felt like home. And as you know, well, you may not know, between their return, and the first century, we're talking about 400 or so years. And in that time, which is basically, if you've got a Bible handy, it's kind of between the ending of the Old Testament section of the Bible and the beginning of the New Testament section. When you hit the New Testament, we're now squarely in the first century, and there's a new world empire now in power. Anybody know who that is? Rome. See, the people had been back for hundreds of years, but it never felt like home. And soon, when they returned, the Greeks came through and went through the, the entire known world. And then after the Greeks came the Romans. And the people were waiting this whole time. God, when are you going to when are you going to bring us back? When are, you, when are we going to restore the nation? When are we going to be back to where we were? When, is, when are you going to bring, bring this king that you promised through Ezekiel and the prophets? When are you going to bring this Messiah king who's going to fix everything and, and bring us back to world prominence? That's what the people were waiting for. God, when are you going to speak? And we, we don't really have a whole lot of, of prophets or anything that happened during that some 400 years before the New Testament era began in, in, in the New Testament. We don't have much. There's not a lot of prophets. Not a lot of, if the people felt like maybe God had abandoned them. Maybe God was done with them once and for all. He brought them back, but maybe he's done. And the people longed for relief. And now, as the first century rolled around, now a new empire has taken over our precious holy land. And these Romans are brutal. And they were the, the, the machinery of war. And the Romans wanted order. And now the people were crying out to God. God, when are you going to rescue us? When is our respite going to come? We are still in exile even though we're home. It doesn't feel like home. God, what are you going to do? They were waiting for the Messiah. Now the history of, of, of the nation has just been feeling like it's been a, a, a waste, an, a, an oblivion. They're, they're a remnant of people, the people of God, but they feel beaten up. They, they, they feel a loss of identity, just like they felt when they first got deported to Babylon. Now they're surrounded by the Romans, and they have a different language, and they have different religion. And once again, they're under 
under siege. And they feel like, where is God in all that? God, are you going to hear us? Are you going to do anything about it? The scriptures tell us that at just the right time, Jesus the Messiah came. At the right moment in world history, God put on flesh and walked among us. You see, what looked like a bad thing with another empire taking over the world is what the Roman Empire did was made travel safe for the first time. You had soldiers guarding major routes. And those roads, or some of them, are still around today. They paved roads. They brought technology. They brought order. And they brought a world language, the Koine Greek language. For the first time, at the right time in history, the Messiah came, prepared for what God was going to do. And that remnant of people, they had been awaiting that Messiah to come. But we're told at the right time he did. And we have accounts of Jesus' life. The Messiah came, and we have what we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can look at those as like biographies, right? They're like biographies of the life of Jesus. We call them, some of your Bibles might say the Gospels, but they're really biographies of the Messiah who had finally come to the nation. They had been waiting prepping. In fact, God even sent this guy named John ahead, and John was a kind of an odd guy. He was out in the wilderness eating bugs, and not maybe the best, you know, announcer of the Messiah coming, but that, that is just John. He was out baptizing, uh, doing this baptism of repentance, and, um, and he was kind of being prophetic, and so the people thought in the first century, maybe John is, is who we've been waiting for, and John said, no, 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 I'm not that guy, but there's one coming that, that's going to be here very soon, and I can't, I'm not even worthy to touch his footwear. And this guy is who we've been waiting for. So, so in that little announcement, we get the arrival of Jesus coming into human history, God with flesh on. You know, in December, we sing songs that have the word Emmanuel in it. Emmanuel, God with us. God put on flesh. At the right time, Jesus the Messiah came. And he spent most of his time with his Jewish people. This remnant that had waited all this time, generation after generation, that had lived in exile. And they were waiting for God to finally do something. And so when God comes, in kind of a humble way and miraculous, he came and he began to say, I am he. I'm what you've been waiting for. But my kingdom is a little different than you're expecting. My kingdom isn't going to boot Rome out of world power. My kingdom is not of this world. And so Jesus came as the king, offering a whole new way to be human, a whole new kingdom, unlike the the, the physical power that the people have been used to and beaten up over. Jesus came bringing a different kingdom. And so the, the, the people didn't all approve. They weren't ready for this new kind of kingdom, this new Messiah, and they thought maybe, maybe this wasn't the one. And so many, many rejected him. And you know how that played out. Essentially, the nation rejected him largely, the, the religious leadership, the Jewish leadership said, no, you're not the king we wanted. We want a king that's going to rule. And Jesus said, no, I'm the king and I'm the Messiah, but it's a new kingdom that I'm bringing you into. And they 
turned him over to the authorities in the Roman Empire, took charge, put him on a cross, and supposedly ended it all. But then as you know the story, a couple days later, you can't hold God down. He came out of the tomb. And he came to his disciples and he said, see, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And you're now part of it. And I want you to take that kingdom to the rest of the world. I want you to tell tales of the kingdom to the world. I want you to take this global. That's what Jesus did. And while he did that, while he was living, Jesus gave us something that you may not have caught. In Jesus' life, and we see this in the biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even in the book of Acts, Jesus, in his life, he had a mission. He accomplished that mission, but while he was here, he modeled for us something that's powerful. He modeled for us how to thrive even in captivity, how to thrive even in exile. In Jesus' life, we see him do some radical things. He speaks the common language, although he knew multiple languages. He spoke the common language. He even addressed soldiers with honor. He addressed soldiers with honor. There was one time that Jesus even tells this soldier, you know, he tells this guy that's a Roman leader in the army, he tells him at one point, you know, your faith, I haven't even seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. God's remnant people, Jesus has the audacity to say that soldier had more faith than some of the nation that were supposed to be God's people. Jesus honored authority. There was one time where Jesus even modeled paying taxes. Now, he did it in a pretty miraculous way. Maybe that's your homework. It's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. I love this story. Okay, I'll give you a little bit of it. So, at one point... This is so amazing. Jesus had friends, you know, his disciples. And I think it was Peter at one point was cornered by some folks. And they're like, you know, does your teacher, you know, pay taxes or whatever? And I think the first words out of his mouth are, yeah, absolutely. And then the very next statement, he's like asking Jesus, do we pay taxes? (laughs) This is kind of this interesting interplay. I'm totally paraphrasing. You you look it up. But uh, Jesus kind of does this cool thing with Peter. He says, well, Peter, you're familiar with fishing. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go catch a fish and to bring it back. And he caught it, and there were two coins in the fish, I think, is, is the, the, this awesome story. And those two coins were paying the tax for, to Caesar. I, just, I find that story amazing because, you know, yes, it's, it's an interesting thing. Peter probably carried that story with him. I mean, can you imagine, like, even after Jesus is gone, every once in a while Peter's just going, I wonder if I can get some more coins out of this next fish. <laughs> Like in the back of his mind, I'm not saying, it's not scripture, but he modeled paying taxes. Now, if you know Roman emperors, they weren't always the nicest people. Some of them were very, very corrupt. In fact, there was one particular emperor that really had it out for the church. This is a guy named Nero. And the emperor Nero did not like early Christians. And it was not good. And it wasn't just Nero, several after him persecuted the church, and yet Jesus had the audacity to honor the king, but he never forgot who was God. Jesus modeled for us an ethic of exile that we introduced last week, this idea of, 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 of loyalty, serving 
the country that you live in without forgetting that God is king. This idea of loyalty and subversion, that we're part of a different kingdom, but we still honor and respect and pray for the country that we're living in. But our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus as king and his kingdom, not of this world. And so Jesus modeled for something that, that, uh, that I think you could, you could title a wisdom warrior. Jesus learned that there were some battles that are worth fighting, other battles that are not worth fighting. You know, at some point, if you think about it, Jesus could have stopped this whole cross thing. In fact, he prayed for it. He's like, God, if there's any other way. In fact, while he was on the cross, I think he even mentioned, you know, I, I could come off of this. I could, I could get all these angels and we can, we can... But he didn't. He knew his mission trumped his feelings. His mission was accomplished. But while he lived here, he showed us what this wisdom warrior was all about. A wisdom warrior is wise about the battles we choose to fight. Sometimes you battle for it. Sometimes you need to let it go. I love this. This is first modeled, I think, in a guy named Daniel that we mentioned last week. One of the exiles, while the nation was in Babylon, going back some, some years now, Daniel and his friends, you probably heard about Daniel and Meshach and Abednego, those guys. Daniel learned the same thing, too, about wisdom warriors, learning to fight the battles that are important. If you remember some of the story of Daniel, and you go back and read Daniel, it's a great book. Uh, lots going on there. But one of the, the ways that Daniel and his friends had to navigate life in Babylon was figuring out what are the battles that are important to fight. And one of those early battles was food. And so Daniel and his friends, they were trying to honor God, honor those laws that they had from, from, from their, the scriptures about what to eat and what not to eat. And one of the things they weren't supposed to eat is pork, right? And so one of the early battles that Daniel had to learn to fight was when it, when it mattered, you want to honor the king or you want to honor, honor the king that you're serving, but ultimately God is in charge. And so he and his friends decide, well, we don't want to eat the king's food because they weren't probably sure how much of that food was cooked with other food, including pork. So what they probably did, Daniel thought, well, the only way that we can be sure that we're not going to eat pork because we're not supposed to do that is to have fruits and vegetables and water to drink. And so he and his buddies made that pact, and, and it was kind of a risky thing. But he, made the, he, he fought that battle because he thought that was important because it was going to honor God, even if they were going to get in trouble by the king. And this wasn't the only time that Daniel and his friends had to figure out how to live properly in exile, honor God, but still serve the country. There was another time where the, the king in power decided he wanted everybody to worship him. And so he created this whole cult of worship around the king. Well, Daniel and his friends couldn't do that. Because nobody is, is God but God alone, Yahweh, right? So at one point, they're even under threat of their life, and Daniel and his friends had to choose that battle. And they said, we're not going to bow down to you as king because, or, or as, as God because we have our God, Yahweh. We're not going to bow down to you, king. We only bow down to God, our Yahweh. And so under threat of fire, the king said, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And they're like, well, that's not fun. But um, we're still not going to bow down to you. One of the greatest statements of faith is when they were put under fire and they were, they were threatened. I love what they tell the king. Our God can save us from this petty fire. But what do they say next? But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to you. Now, 
David or Daniel and his friends, they were in leadership. They were in power. They were part of the Babylonian machine. But they learned the ethic of exile. And that is, you want our God as king. And when anything gets in the way of that, you have a battle to fight. So they had to learn to pick and choose carefully. That's what a wisdom warrior does. Daniel modeled it and Jesus modeled it for us. Remember what Jeremiah 29, 7 said. We read that last week. Let me just read that passage. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, we learn as exiles to bless our enemies, pray for our enemies, pray for those in power, but we're not silent on injustice. When we see injustice, we speak up. That's a battle worth fighting. I think about this now in our current culture. I mean, it's almost like social media has become this landmine. You can't say anything. People are just throwing stuff up there. It's like they want to argue. And the thing is, it's just gotten to a point where it used to be that I feel like we, we, we could respect each other even if we had differences of opinion. Now I feel like that's all just thrown out the wall. If you have an opinion, you're, you're going to make someone else angry. And it's like this, this vitriol back and forth. And you know what? I've learned, and maybe you can learn this too, that you don't have to weigh in on everything. You don't have to get into that battle. A wisdom warrior learns which battles are important to fight. Some of them are not. There will be another president at some point. We know that for sure. And there will be new people in Congress. There will be new people in the Supreme Court. You know what we're called to do? Pray for those folks. That's hard jobs. Can you imagine being a Supreme Court justice? These cases that are brought before you? Pray for these people. That's what we're called to do. Pray for them. We don't need to have an opinion on every single thing. Sometimes silence is better. There's the wisdom in silence sometimes. In fact, I think even Proverbs says, even like, even like a foolish person can look wise if they just keep their mouth shut. I feel like, you know, I'm not saying you're foolish, right? but I'm just saying, sometimes keeping our mouth shut is a good thing. We don't have to weigh in on everything. We pick, our, we pick our battles carefully is what I'm trying to say. Probably less helpful to do any of that on social media anyway, but Daniel modeled it in exile. Jesus modeled it under Roman rule. We pay taxes, but no president or prime minister is God. Right? Our ultimate allegiance is to God, our king. Jesus is king, not any world ruler, but we pray for those world rulers. We're engaged. We're not just letting it all go crazy. We're engaged. We're loving on people. We're serving people, praying for those in power, but learning the way of the wisdom warrior, that there are some battles that are important to fight, others of them we need to let them go. Asking God for the discernment. You see, the early church uh, had to learn this. Jesus in, in those biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get a picture of his life and how he lived and, and, and how he interacted with people, how he honored and paid taxes, and, and, and he did all that, and then he turned it over to his followers. And he said, now the church age launches, and I want you to take this good news to the world. Now, the early church struggled there for a while because they tended just to stay around the Jerusalem area. So they stayed there for probably probably a bit too long, but the early church began to grow like crazy because people were, were talking about this Jesus guy who offered freedom and no more of this religious stuff, but freedom in Christ. And so people resonated with that message and the church began to grow, but it stayed in and around Jerusalem 
for a long time. We don't, we don't see the early church kind of moving on to be a blessing to the world until around Acts chapter 8. And there's a reason for that. There was this upshot, up-and-coming rabbi named Saul. And he gets a burn under his saddle against all these Christ followers. And he decides, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to be this Jewish leader. And I'm going to take care of this whole Jesus movement. And I'm going to nip it in the bud right now. And so in Acts chapter 8, the persecution begins to take place. And what does the early church do? Anybody know? Finally, they scatter, they leave Jerusalem, and they go to all corners of the Roman Empire. And they can do that because the scriptures say at the right time, Jesus came. Those early followers could travel safely. There was one common language. And they could take Jesus to every corner of even the pagan nation of Rome. History tells us it was a pretty amazing thing the early church did. Spread throughout the known world, taking the word of Jesus to all those places. And it says that the, the early church was, the word church that we get in, in English is, is really a Greek word that means those who were called out, ecclesia, the called out ones. And, and they were called out to live differently in the world. Even though they weren't home yet, they were exiled all over the world, but they lived the exile way, and they learned to serve people, love people, be Christ-like in their corner of the world, wherever they ended up being. And they lived differently so much so that even early Roman historians wrote about these weird people called these Christ followers that follow this Christus guy. And they do weird things like they don't go to gladiator games. They rescue babies that have been abandoned, which was perfectly legal in the first century. They, they love each other. They care for the poor. The early church began to be known by exactly what Jesus asked them to be known by not their political persuasion, not the bumper stickers on their cars, but, but love. They were showing love. They were being literally the called out ones, living as exiles in faraway places, taking the Jesus ethic with them. And there were battles that they fought, other battles they didn't. They learned the wisdom warrior way. And we're products of how they lived so many centuries later. We wouldn't even be in this room had they not followed Jesus no matter where they were. The Jesus movement spread globally and the called out ones made a difference. I love what one of the early Christians, a friend of Jesus, a man named Peter, I love what he wrote in, in some of his, his writings in the first century. In 1 Peter 1, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, a.k.a. modern-day Turkey, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. These exiles that had now gone all over the world, Peter's encouraging them on how to live as exiles in a foreign place. And he says this, and he continues in, in, in verse 13. 
Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be confirm, conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he, who is call, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He continues in chapter 2, and he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, like Daniel and like Jesus, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. Wow. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is living in exile. Serving, loving people, honoring the authority, but never forgetting who's ultimate king. That's Jesus. We never forget who's ultimately in charge. The early church learned how to, how to walk this wisdom warrior way, how to live the exile of ethic, or the ethic of exile, where you, you are loyal, but also subversive, because we serve a risen Jesus. How do you remain loyal to Jesus in our culture? How do you remain loyal to Jesus in your workplace? and in your community, in your family. Remain loyal to Jesus in where you're at. God has called us all to be right where we are. And how do we, how do we thrive even in exile? Until, until one day he comes back and we're, we see new heavens and new earth. And we get to be part of new creation. Until that day we live as exiles, a people of God awaiting home. How will you live? And my encouragement is that we all do this one thing is that we learn to be a wisdom warrior. Learn which battles are important. We live as a wisdom warrior, living out the called out ways of Jesus. Living out the called out ways of Jesus. Yeah, I think, I think people can stand on the street corner with a guitar and sing songs and hand out Bibles. That's okay, that's good. Uh, I've also learned there's other ways. Building friendships, doing good in our community, having conversations with people at Starbucks. Um, God has called us to live the called out ways of Jesus in our world. And that means in your workplace, in the community, and everywhere we're at, we take Jesus with us. That's the ethic of exile. Jesus is king, but we're still going to engage in our culture. We're not going to be assumed by culture. We're going to engage our culture. Learn how culture speaks, but be able to never forget that Jesus is ultimately king. 
So we serve people. We love people. We honor authority. Peter even said, right, every human institution, that we honor authority, but ultimately Jesus is king. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and wow, this is, this is powerful stuff, Father. You're, you're calling us to, to even in exile to live, live your son's ways out in our world. So, Father, empower us to do that. It's hard. Help us as a church family to encourage each other, especially in gatherings like this, that we encourage one another in this, in this endeavor to be, to be exiles, your people awaiting home one day. Father, help us to be about your work right here, right now, in our town, in our, in our community. Father, help us to love and serve people, to be engaged citizens, to honor and pray for those who are in authority over us. Father, help us to be engaged, to vote, to pay taxes, to work for the good, but never forgetting that you're in charge. Father, we bow to you as King and Lord and and enable us, Father, to live the called out ways of Jesus in our world. And in his name we pray, amen. Uh, I was handed this after last weekend and I wanna just read this to you. This comes from an old, old hymn called The King's Business. And here's what the opening line says. I am a stranger here within a foreign land. I'm here on business for my king. We're here on business for our king. We are ambassadors on Jesus' behalf, telling the world his ways until one day he comes back. Right?